Thank you, John. Whether you've joined here uh, in person or you are worshiping with us uh, at home today, I want to welcome you and thank you for being here today. My name is, uh, as John just mentioned, Milt Johnson, and uh, we are going to be continuing today in our sermon series through the Sermon on the Mount. And once again, I want to invite you to turn with me to chapter 5 of the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5. As you're doing that, let me just say that um, we're going to be covering quite a bit of material today, and I think it would be incredibly helpful if you didn't grab a note sheet to grab one, because I think filling that out will give you a resource to rethink through and pray through this week the various principles that we're going to be looking at here today from Matthew chapter 5. Let me also remind you that the Sermon Mount, of the Mount um, in this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is laying out for us, revealing for us, the DNA of a kingdom citizen. It's not explanation of how you get into the kingdom, but rather God's expectation of those that are already members of this kingdom. No one declares Jesus in verse 20. Boy, that verse just jumps right off the page to me. Will enter the kingdom of heaven unless their righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And those are, are pretty strong words, as we've noted uh, throughout the study, especially for the scribes and Pharisees who believe they had 50-yard line tickets for righteousness in the kingdom of heaven. And for those that were in the crowd, I would imagine that based on the outward behavior of the scribes and the Pharisees, they would have thought if anybody was righteous enough to be in heaven, it would be the scribes and the Pharisees by their outward behaviors and activities. But again, as we've seen over and over again in this study, Jesus is going to remind us today that what's needed most is not merely an outer transformation, but a heart transformation. And that kind of transformation can only take place when we put our trust and faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior. And to drive that point home of the importance of an inside-out righteousness, Jesus addresses, as John prayed a moment ago, without a doubt, a profoundly important and yet impacting uh, topic in our lives in, in so many different ways. I think if I went around the room and I asked you how has divorce and remarriage impacted you, we'd all have different stories to tell. Jesus will address this. This is indeed a controversial topic both in the church and in America and in any country really. I've traveled quite a bit and I think it's a challenge wherever you go. And there are many I think who seek to downplay what Jesus says here or to disregard it entirely uh, as an irrelevant practice of, uh, of, of an ancient thing. But, uh, but I believe that uh, it's part of God's word and from my heart, I believe anything that God writes in his word is inspired, and it's something that requires serious thought and attention. That's the thought I'm going with today. Now, to help properly understand and to apply the principles that are presented today by Jesus here in Matthew chapter 5, I want to present to you right up front seven biblical principles on divorce and remarriage. To get us started, uh, I'm going to share these principles, like I said, right up front. Are you ready? Here goes. Number one, marriage is the sacred covenant between one man and one woman, and God's intention is for a marriage to last a lifetime. And by the way, I'm going to go through all these again, so if you miss a, a, 
a blank, don't panic, okay? Second principle here. Divorce is not always sinful. Number three, divorce is permitted, but not required on the ground of sexual immorality. Number four, divorce is permitted, but not required on the ground of desertion of an unbelieving spouse. Number five, in situations where divorce is biblically permissible, remarriage, I believe, is also permissible. Number six, when a divorce is not biblically permissible, the believing couple should either remain unmarried or be reconciled. And finally, number seven, non-scriptural, non-biblical divorced and remarried Christians should stay as they are, but repent and be forgiven of their past sins and make whatever amends necessary to make their marriage all that God intended. Now, one more thing before we jump into our text, as I was preparing for this message, it occurred to me if I was a young person sitting out there today and uh, you said to me we're going to be studying divorce and remarriage and all that kind of thing, you might be tempted to say, well, gee, I'm young, I'm single, I'm not married, so I I get a pass today. I'm going to take a nap during the service. However, as I've been doing my devotions recently in the book of Proverbs, it's occurred to me that there are so many warnings in the book of Proverbs addressed to the young who are not married about uh, sexual purity and adultery. Let me give you an example. Here admonishing his son in Proverbs 6, 32 and 33, Solomon writes these words. He who commits adultery lacks sense. Who does it destroys himself. Listen to this. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. Guys, according to what I read here in the book of Proverbs, if there is ever a time in your life to set in your mind a heart towards obedience and sexual purity, it's right now. Not then, but now. And I hope that today's sermon will help reinforce and equip that principle in your hearts. As Solomon points out here, very wisely, I think, adultery comes with a very bitter cost, okay? Let's look at our text here. Let's jump in. Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. Here's what Jesus says. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, let me remind you, this is the third of six uh, statements that Christ makes by introducing them. You have heard, referencing to what they've heard in the law and through the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees, but I say to you. Jesus is referring here to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, where Moses is said to have written, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if she then finds no favor in his eyes, Uh, because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand, he sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house. Now, many, many people debate over what this word indecency means. Some commentators immediately leap to the conclusion that Jesus is talking, or Moses is talking here about sexual immorality or adultery. I think it's interesting, if you know anything about this time, at this time, adultery 
was punishable by capital offense. It was a capital offense. And so it's not likely that indecency can refer exclusively to adultery. One thing for sure as I was looking at this text is that it must have been something more than trivial. Uh, but it's honestly, it's difficult to, to try to determine. It's not clear what exactly this word indecency means. And here's the thing. This is the scary thing, and I think Moses was trying to regulate this. If a husband found something indecent in his wife at this time, he would simply write the certificate of divorce and then literally kick, him, kick her out of the house. And practically speaking, that meant at this time that because women had no rights, no jobs, and no place to live, they were basically homeless. And as a result, in order to provide for themselves, they were often forced to enter into prostitution or possibly into an unbiblical marriage, which I think is what Jesus is referring here to in Matthew 5, 32 and 33, if her parents could not take her back in or didn't want to take her back in. So that's the foundation. Fast forwarding now some 1,000 years, it appears that because of the liberal interpretation of this passage here in Deuteronomy 24, the issue of divorce in Jesus' time was a huge debated topic. And as a result, divorce had become so widespread, it was a practice among the Jewish people, but it was also a practice among the Pharisees who were guilty of multiple divorces, as I understand it, often for the most absurd reasons. And so one day, as John read a moment ago, according to Matthew chapter 19, and actually Mark chapter 10, there are parallel passages, hoping to discredit Jesus and to, in the eyes of the public, diminish his large following that was happening at this time. Some Pharisees approached Jesus and they asked him, is it lawful for a man to put away, or literally divorce her, his wife, for every and any reason? There's very strong reason to believe that their questioning was disingenuous. But this was a clear attempt by the Pharisees to place Jesus at odds with the law and there are many liberal interpretations of that law concerning divorce. At the time, you see, there were basically two major schools of thought among the rabbis when it came to the legitimate grounds for divorce. The followers of Shammai, for example, represented the more conservative, unpopular view of divorce. They held that a man could not divorce his wife except under the, the circumstances that she was found guilty of sexual immorality. There were followers of Hillai as well, another school of thought of rabbis. Literal interpretation of divorce, uh, uh, they had a very liberal interpretation of divorce, and it was adhered to by most of the Pharisees and the majority of the first century Jews at this time. And they were allowed to divorce for any reason, including, according to the Mishnah, uh, spoiling a dinner and a man finding or discovering a woman that was more... Uh, appealing to him than his wife. And of course, one of the major issues and one of the reasons I believe Moses wrote this regulation, neither group would ever permit a wife to divorce her husband for any cause. While avoiding this whole radical controversy altogether, Jesus tells these Pharisees that, hey, listen, guys, if you are looking for biblical reasons to justify Divorcing your wives or justify your past action, you're missing the whole point of God's design and desire for marriage. 
and then getting right to the heart. How many times have we said that as we've been doing this study? Getting right to the heart of the matter, according to Matthew 19, verses 4 through 6, Jesus responds to their question by directing them to the authority of the Scriptures by pointing them back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, saying, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one. What therefore God has joined together, Scripture says, let no man separate. So Jesus makes it very clear marriage is a sacred covenant not to be entered into lightly and not to be broken lightly. Why then, the Pharisees go on to ask, well, why did Moses command or permit that man, a man could divorce his wife by simply writing this certificate of divorce? And Jesus very quickly comes back and he says, that's not been true from the beginning. It was not so. Matthew 19, verse 80 goes on. It was because of the hardness of your heart that Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. And then ready or not, Jesus gave them the answer to their question in chapter 19, verse 9 of Matthew 19. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. You know, folks, today more and more people, to, they tend to forget the sage advice that Henry Ford, the automaker, the advice he gave when asked on their 50th wedding anniversary, what was the secret to your marital bliss and longevity? Here's what he replied. I love it. Just the same as the automobile business, stick to one model. <laughs> all kidding aside I hope you don't miss the contrast this huge contrast that's happening between the thoughts and perspectives of Jesus here and these Pharisees and these, or, and these uh, scribes about divorce Jesus you see wants to talk about the sanctity and the sacredness of marriage the Pharisees and the scribes they want to talk about how a marriage can be broken Jesus wants to talk about how a marriage shouldn't be broken and I believe that before we go on and say anything else about this whole topic of marriage and divorce, that folks, we as brothers and sisters in Christ need to understand and feel the weightiness that Jesus is saying here. And that's principle number one. You miss this, you miss everything. Principle number one, marriage is the sacred covenant between one man and one woman. And God's intention from the beginning is for that marriage to last a lifetime. Someone wisely commented on this passage. If in this passage you are looking for reasons a marriage covenant might be broken, I love this. It's like learning to fly by practicing crash landings. Our training for battle by practicing retreats. But you might say, but pastor, what about real life? Come on. Is divorce always sinful? That's principle number two. Divorce is not always sinful. If a divorce is obtained because of a sexual immorality of one's spouse, then divorce, says Jesus here in verse 32, is not morally wrong. So what is sexual immorality? 
What does it mean? It's obvious, isn't it? It's any sexual pleasure or activity with anyone besides your spouse. Why is sexual immorality singled out here? I thought about that. The reason, I think, is because sexual intimacy is given as the mark by God of uh, even the recognition of a marriage relationship. Remember back in Genesis 2, 24, when God instituted marriage and he said to Adam and Eve, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Where it says they shall become one flesh in part has a meaning or reminder of the sexual intimacy reserved only for a man and his wife. How do I know that? But because Paul later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, will say this, Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two, hear this, will become one flesh. You know, yes, when we marry, we unite in all sorts of ways to our spouse. Hopefully we unite in dreams and vision and, and purposes. Hopefully we do lots of things together. Hopefully we have a great friendship together but of all the things i just said you can do that with other people besides your spouse and yet there is one thing jesus makes clear that is totally reserved for your spouse and that is sexual intimacy i love what pastor kevin dion says on this point sexual sin breaks the marriage covenant because sex is the o of signing of the covenant having Sexual experiences with someone other than your spouse is like trying to sign on someone else's dotted line. That's why I believe immorality is grounds for divorce here. If, if you see, what you see here is someone who has sex with somebody other than their husband or their wife is effectively broken the marriage bond and united with someone who isn't their spouse. Now, let me just say that part of the problem and the controversy that was happening at this time, there was even debates whether sexual intimacy was appropriate with a married couple. And I want to say up front, by way of application, Jesus is not against sexual pleasure within a marriage. It's a gift. He's against illicit pleasure that is forbidden with someone other than our spouse. Hebrews 13.4 tells us that the marriage bed is to be kept pure and undefiled. And so let me urge you today, brothers and sisters in Christ, take sexual sin very, very seriously. So many times when I'm working and counseling with men who are struggling with sexual uh, impurity, they'll tell me, Pastor, I know this is a sin. I know what God says about it, but I know what I ought to do, but the problem is I never get around to it. And I want to remind you, as Pastor Mike did, that in verses 29 and 30, Jesus emphatically says when it comes to dealing with sexual sin in our life, cut it off, pluck it out, deal decisively with that which will destroy you. Don't play with it. And another point of application here, allow me to ask. So if your spouse commits adultery, sexual immorality against you, are you obligated to divorce them? Oh, of course not. And that's principle number three. Divorce, you see, is permitted but not required on the ground of sexual immorality. Please note that Jesus does not insist upon divorce in such cases. 
Nor does he command it or encourage it. He simply makes allowance for it for the innocent spouse. In fact, we read in scriptures all the time that confession and repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation is always God's preference. And so if your spouse commits adultery against you and they truly repent, I mean not just empty words, but they truly repent, I believe according to scriptures you must forgive them. Now mind you, forgiving them doesn't necessarily mean restoring that marriage. But it's certainly an option. If, however, that person has an ongoing problem or that person leaves you for another person, then you may, as I understand it clearly, divorce them. And I would add, you're also permitted to remarry. In addition to immorality, looking now at 1 Corinthians 7, if you want to turn there with me, we discover that divorce is also permitted but not required on the grounds of desertion of an unbelieving spouse. Divorce is also permitted, but not required on the ground of desertion by an unbelieving spouse. That's principle number four. Now let me remind you, at the time that this was written, this instruction was written, Christianity was relatively new. So it wasn't uncommon for, in the early church, for converts to come to faith apart from their spouse. And this would understandably create this tension in the believer, joined to Christ in a union with him, while at the same time joined to someone outside of Christ. Elsewhere in Scripture, they're told, hey, don't become unequally yoked in 2 Corinthians 6.14. It teaches they shouldn't be married to an unbeliever, but what if they're already married to that unbeliever? What do they do? Should they divorce them? Well, Paul makes that very clear. Chapter 7, 1 Corinthians Chapter 7, verses 12 through 14. Look at what he says. To the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving, verse 14, husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. And so the practical instruction I see here from Paul is that if you are married to a non-believer and they are happy to continue to live with you as a husband or a wife, then according to the scriptures, you should remain married to them and be a witness to them of a, of a Christ follower in the home. Now, admittedly, that's not an easy road that God has called you to do. And you probably know that better than I if you're in that situation. But it's one your suffering Savior knows intimately, and he promises never to leave you nor to forsake you. Now, what if you have an unbelieving spouse who wants out of the marriage? Paul addresses that too. Verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not bound, unslaved, enslaved. God has called you to peace. Again, does that mean that the spouse is free to marry? Well, I'm sure Paul would say, listen, hey, there's a lot of advantages to remaining single, but I think in, in the case where an unbelieving spouse insists on leaving, then that marriage bond, it says, is broken, and the innocent party is free to remarry. And that's my fifth point. In situations where divorce was permittable or permissible 
i.e., I think adultery and abandonment, remarriage is also possible. Now, personally, as a counselor, when I encounter someone who's in this situation where they've had a non-believing spouse leave them, not, not, not to someone else, but they just decided they don't want to be married, I, I encourage them not to quickly rush into another relationship. And I do this because I, I want to give that unbelieving spouse time to potentially come to know Christ as their Savior and then their marriage be restored. However, that's not a hard and fast rule. I look at Scripture. Uh, it depends on so many different factors, uh, according to this. Each to be evaluated by each situation, by each person. Purity in life and thought. Time and resources. Children needing a father or mother. And, uh, and by the way, should that spouse, that ex-spouse, marry uh, someone else, a new person, or enter into a sexual relationship, all my concerns uh, are null and void. Phew, I said a lot, didn't I? I hope you've been able to follow. In summary, as I understand it, the traditional position held by the majority of evangelicals is that divorce is permissible on two grounds, adultery and abandonment. Now let me add something here because a lot of people came to me after the first service. I am so sympathetic and yet extremely cautious about finding other grounds for divorce. For example, when the Bible doesn't, is kind of silent on the issue of spousal voice, uh, abuse as a reason for divorce, I want to say right up front, physical abuse against your spouse or your children is immoral and it should not be tolerated by anyone. In fact, whenever abuse is occurring, even if there is not adultery clearly in the situation or abandonment, I believe seeking physical uh, safety, personal safety for your family and for yourself is, uh, and, and some form of a separation might be the most loving step you could ever uh, make for both you and your family. Staying in an abusive scenario is not an expectation of a godly spouse. You're not to be a spiritual punching bag. And by the way, it's, it's, it's against the law. And so civil authorities, I believe, need to be contacted when that kind of abuse occurs. And this, again, is why. I mean, when we talk about uh, things outside of uh, immorality or, or uh, abandonment, each case needs to be dealt with individually. It's also why we need biblical principles so that we have something to apply to these gut-wrenching, difficult, sinful circumstances. Principle number six is the most challenging one to our modern years. And it is presented in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 and 11. Here's what Paul instructs, and I believe he's speaking to believing couples here. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. And folks, from this passage, along with Jesus' statement in Mark chapter 10, in Matthew chapter 5, in Matthew chapter 19, um, the principle that I have derived in here for number six is when divorce is not biblically permissible, the believing couple 
should either remain unmarried or be reconciled. Admittedly, this is hard teaching. I hope you will agree with me, though, as one of your pastors here, that we must not change or jettison difficult sayings in Scripture because they're difficult for us to understand or apply. In fact, Jesus' disciples, when they heard this statement, they were so taken aback that they said to Jesus, perhaps we shouldn't get married at all. It would be better not to get married. And this is why, folks, I believe this teaching, this passage needs to be taught, not in the times of trouble, <laughs> but, but on a, you know, when we get to it in Scripture, we need to deal with it. Believers, you see, must be warned, as I understand it, of the sacredness God holds in his heart for marriage and the impact of breaking it. And I believe as you hear this today, hopefully believers will think twice about breaking our marriage covenant if we understand it's just not that simple to just remarry. And by the way, let me just say this again, my conviction, I believe that once a Christian spouse involved in a non-biblical divorce at the, and, and, and it gets to the point of no reconciliation, and by that I mean the death of that person, or they've entered into another relationship, they are free to marry again. So what do you do if today you find yourself in a marriage that doesn't align with the things we just read about in Scripture? Did you get divorced? Let me answer that question with my seventh principle. Non-scriptural divorced and remarried Christians, I believe, should stay as they are, but repent and be forgiven of their past sins and make whatever amends are necessary to have the best marriage they could ever have. Does that mean these Christians have gotten away with sin? Not at all. We are never better off having sinned. Ask anyone who's been through divorce, and they will tell you the consequences, the pain, and the difficulties are so immense. But if the Spirit of God is genuinely at work in your heart today and you look back at your divorce and remarriage and you recognize that it wasn't appropriate, I urge you to humbly confess, oh Lord, I was ignorant of the scriptures. I was blind to my own sin. I have truly broken your law. I was wrong. And then I would urge repentance. That is, you move toward God with your heart and with your family, with your marriage, rather than away from him. And praise God as I understand scripture. In his grace, God makes all things new. He gives you a fresh start. Folks, there is nothing you or I have done that God cannot or will not forgive. There is no amount of distance that we have between us and God that the cross of Christ cannot bridge. Amen? In him, says Paul in Ephesians 1, 7 and 8, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our, trespass, our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. In addition to asking forgiveness, it's my understanding because there's such a strong connection between the horizontal and the vertical relationship we have. I believe that we must also make sure we've done everything we can within our power to make things right with all those people who were hurt by the breaking of our marriage covenant. Ex-spouses, kids, your parents, in-laws, etc. This does not mean, by the way, that they're going to be warmly receptive to that or that it immediately erases all the pain. 
and the memories and the bad habits and the consequences are the underlying cause of that. But it gives you now the opportunity to begin afresh in the process of God humbling your heart and working through his spirit and his word to make you all that he intended. Let me just say this, because I had a lot of people over the last three weeks, and they knew I was teaching. I had several people come, what are you going to say? What are you going to say? What are you going to say? If you are experiencing guilt or regret over your divorce today, and you have confessed that to God, I urge you to pray to ask God to take that regret, give that regret to him. Stop carrying that around. Allow yourself to experience God's blessing in the current marriage and make that new marriage one that will last forever, one that shines brightly for the Lord Jesus Christ. When I got to this point in my sermon, I thought, what are people thinking out there? What am I thinking as I get to this point? And I came up with four things to share with four different groups that I think are sitting in this room today. The first thing I'd like to address is the happy and the healthy married couples that are here today. May I urge you, humbly guard your relationship with your spouse. Don't think you're above falling. Don't think you're above temptation. Watch your wandering eyes, as Mike pointed out. Guard your thought life. Avoid any situations. I can't tell you how many people say, I don't have any idea how I got there, Pastor. I know, because you were stupid. Sin makes us stupid, right? Don't put yourself in situations pridefully thinking you can stand. The moment you think that you can is the moment you fall. Positively speaking, pray together, study together, serve together, take walks together, spend time alone from your kids together, seek to fill each other's sexual gas tank. Remember, there are few things, dear brother or sister in Christ, more precious in life than your marriage. So don't take it for granted. And remember, too, this always sobers me. When God wanted to give us a picture of what he wants or what his relationship with the church, Christ really, he said, look at the human institution of marriage. That's sobering, isn't it? Guard your marriage. No doubt there are people sitting here today that are in unhealthy or struggling marriages. I want to urge you to fight for your marriage. On a personal note, <laughs> um, and I asked Val if I could share this. I remember on our one-year anniversary, we decided to take an, uh, a second honeymoon to Bermuda, and we were sitting on the beach, and I remember both of us saying, do you dislike me as much as I dislike you? We didn't realize how many of the challenges and struggles we had had created such a, a distance between us. And I thought it was all her. That's what men do, right? Somebody's really in the amen mode here. <laughs> that is until we talked. We sat on that beach and we talked it out. I found out it was a whole lot of me. And a whole lot of us as a couple not functioning together as God intends for a couple to work together. We were selfish. And we were so unhappy stress and selfishness and stubbornness and the need to, can you believe Val and I always feel like we have to be right? We really struggled with that. And it was chipping away at our unity. And frankly, we realized that we were foolishing, wanting to hold on to our hurt, our anger, 
and pridefully our resentment toward each other rather than working through our problems. You know what saved our marriage? By the way, it's almost 40 years now. We humbly got on our knees, confessed to each other our failures, confessed to God. The only thing we had going for us, I remember we both said, we stood before a bunch of people and said, for better, for worse, for richer or poorer. The only thing we had going for us was Jesus, and it turns out it was more than enough. So fight for your marriage. Don't give in. It's hard. Don't give in. By the way, you might ask, well, why would God want anyone to stay in a situation where it makes us unhappy? The answer is clear. Because God is far more concerned, brothers and sisters in Christ, about our holiness than about our happiness. Again, let me repeat here. I feel like I have to say this again. If you're in a physically violent situation, you or your children, it's immoral, don't tolerate, seek help. You're not to be a spiritual punching bag. The next one I thought about was, I believe there's probably people sitting here that are either involved or contemplating an adulterous situation. This is your wake-up call. Yeah, the changing culture and society, morals have continued to decline and change, but as we see from Jesus here, God's view of adultery and the purity of marriage has not changed. God is not a cosmic joy killer. He knows, brother or sister in Christ, that adultery destroys people. It destroys families. The very place that God has designed for his people to find in, uh, peace and safety and flourishing is destroyed when we foolishly enter into an adulterous situation. So here's how I've been praying all week. Join me in praying for this because none of us are beyond this. I've been praying that you will think less, we will think less about the pleasure we are experiencing or expecting and start to think more about the pain that we'd be causing. Not to mention the testimony that it is to our Savior and our Lord Jesus Christ. I mentioned the young adults earlier, and I want to end by making a few charges to you. First, let me say that uh, I think there's a huge pressure by people to say, well, you can't be happy if you're not married. And I want to say not all Christians are going to get married. And these people are following God's call, and the single life may be a very, it can be very, very important. And I, I don't ever want to discount that. However, if you believe God wants you to someday marry, I hope, dear brother or sister in Christ, you've heard very clearly today that marriage is a sacred and lifelong commitment, not to be entered into lightly and not to be ex exiting out of it lightly either. When we marry, you see, as believers, we enter into a three-way partnership with our spouse and with our holy God, and nothing should come between either of those partnerships. That's why it's so important. And, and, and don't fall for those excuses that you have to compromise. Wait on the Lord. Let him work in your life. It's so important that we date. People say, well, I can date without marrying. Don't go there. Date and marry someone who is a Christian, who shares your passions and your love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, oh, one more thing. I'm sorry, I just wrote myself a note here. I realize I've just, boy, oh boy, I've just shared a whole lot of stuff to you. I want you to know I love you, and I've done the best I can to humbly teach God's word today. I realize maybe you might have some questions 
our concerns that were shared today. I want to make myself available and the entire pastoral staff this week. If you have any questions or concerns, please give us a call. It's really hard to deal with those things here on a Sunday morning. But if you have a concern, I'll make myself and any one of the staff, any of the pastoral staff, willing to talk with you this week. Please don't hesitate to come and talk to us if you're struggling. Okay, let's go back to prayer. Father, thank you so very much for this very practical look in your word here today and lord if there's any areas that needs reordering about our attitudes towards marriage and uh, divorce i pray that you'll work in our hearts help each one of us to respond to the leading and the convicting of your spirit help those of us in healthy and strong marriages to be all more fortified to invest in that marriage anyone who's thinking about doing something foolish now lord please bring them to their knees and uh, lord for all our young people lord we pray that you'll guide them and direct them in a way that will make their life a powerful testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray these things. Amen.